to the United States, essentially without an identity, taught me that the greatest value was my authenticity. Who am I? The stories, like these authentic stories that I would tell. It was the passion. It was the vision. Like that, that was it. Hello, first time founders. My name is Stacy, And I'm Maria. And we are the hosts of the Dear First Time Founders podcast. Through the conversations with our incredible founders, we will talk about their journey of navigating the two F words in Silicon Valley, fear and failure. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Stacey Lawson, and welcome back to our Dear First Time Founders podcast, where we sit down to have intimate conversations with our multiple time founders to gain their wisdom and insights. And today I have an extra special kind of excitement and opportunity as I'm actually interviewing my co-host for the series, Dear First Time Founders, Maria Sipka. And Maria, among many other fascinating roles in her life, is the co-founder of Linkia, a leading influencer marketing technology company serving over 500 enterprise and emerging brands. And Maria, what has just like captivated me about you is this passion and how deeply it seems that you followed your heart at the various crossroads of your life. So I'm hoping we can explore that a little bit. And I'll, I'll give my little tidbits here. Your parents have escaped communist Czechoslovakia with two toddlers. You grew up in Australia, kind of footloose and fancy free surfing, um, but decided that in your teens, you would be financially independent by age 30. And you managed to do that. You've traveled around the world. You've in some ways, you know, discovered influencer marketing, which I'm curious to hear a little bit about that story and founded multiple companies. So, you know, you've co-founded Zing in Europe, you've co-founded Linkia here in the US. There's so much ground to cover and I'm just really excited to be able to hear your story. Maybe to start, I'm kind of fascinated by this juxtaposition between your parents escaping Czechoslovakia and then the sort of your upbringing in Australia and how free it was. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious how these early influences really shaped you as a person and also how they motivated you on your um, earliest journey of becoming financially independent at a, such a young age. What a beautiful way to start. Thank you for really digging in deep into the areas that, that light me up. And it, uh, as you were asking that question, it really anchors to what I've dedicated my whole life to, which is storytelling. And so with my parents escaping a communist country, it was the stories that they shared. And every immigrant family in particular inducts their children into their journey. So it's a whole collection of stories and then emotions and what you experience as a child that then shape who you are and your ideologies and how you dream and where the possibilities are. So some of the snippets or vignettes into what had a tremendous amount of influence over me was this visual that my dad shared. You know, my parents were really young when they had me. I think my mum was 20 or 21 and my dad was like 23. And so they obviously didn't plan to have children so young, um, but he, here we are. And they, they were educated, they were at college and my dad was studying to be an industrial chemist and my mother was studying sociology. So 
She was in uh, a folk choir and actually travelled around the country or maybe even Europe at the time. It was a communist country. So they led these very rich lives, whereas youth, they felt like they had the world at their fingertips. However, they were living in a communist country. Everything, every part of who my, my father in particular was, was like, I've got to get out of here. Now that I've got two young children, I've got to get as far away from here as possible so my children have the opportunity to dream and not be confined by this communist thinking that I'd been subjected to and really give them that opportunity. So they, they left that country where they escaped and they had a couple of thousand dollars. They spoke no English. Some woman that owned an, a dilapidated castle in Freiburg, Germany, took us in along with other refugees, I guess. And then we were just waiting to be placed. Like, can you imagine that? Like just, mm-hmm. and my mother, my mother's mother was ill at the time. She had cancer and they had a very close relationship between her sisters. So I can't imagine on a cellular level, like what they were feeling and what the, the amount of trust that they just had in the world that things would be better. So when we arrived in Australia, so that was the first, it was like this tremendous amount of courage to go, I want a better life. Here's the vision. And we're going to sacrifice everything with two very young children, a one-year-old and a two-year-old to do that. So that was one. And then secondly, you know, my parents being educated had to start from the bottom. My, my dad, I think he said his first job was a courier. My mum worked in a fish and chip shop. We lived in a hostel, a migrant hostel, and then they saved up enough money and learned to speak enough English to live in a, in a boarding house in like the worst part of the city. And so you know, under, now I started to have memories and recollections of that, of how they made ends meet. Like they didn't have money to have babysitters. We didn't have any family around. They would just like leave us the neighbors and like it was rough and tumble. And but this family unit that kept together, it was so sacred. There's just there's this sense of safety that was instilled. And then the third, the third and most critical part, like they were foundational, was this notion of freedom, then safety. And then it was like my mum and dad set this goal to become financially independent. They worked their way up the corporate ladder. My, my, my mother became a politician and then an entrepreneur. My dad also worked his way up as an industrial chemist. They invested all the money into real estate. We lived in this beachside town and I saw just the output of their hard work and that they achieved their dreams and their visions. And that was just the foundation of like, wow, like, you know, well done, dad, like your vision when I was one years old has become a, and I felt like, you know, I I felt honored, but I also felt like I now had a ticket to dream. Wow, what an amazing <laughs> story. Wow, and the courage. I just I'm honoring the courage and yeah, belief and belief in self, belief in the ideals of freedom that you're describing and and their just commitment to hard work and making their way. That's really incredible. And I'm sure that had a huge influence on you as a kid. Maybe, maybe take us back because you started your first 
your first entrepreneurial endeavor in your teens, mm-hmm. really, right? So the, this sort of upbringing that you're describing, how did that kind of motivate the decision? I mean, it's very rare for anyone, let alone someone who's had that kind of challenge and I mean, you know, in, in their early life to have the confidence to start a company. So tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> my dad was very frugal and very tight with money. And he would give me and my sister like a dollar a week pocket money. So we grew up in a family environment where the focus was on the family, the experience, learning how to cook, garden. We would sit around the couch and they'd have classical music playing and we would converse and then we would make choices of family. Do we want a swimming pool or do we want to go on a trip somewhere? And so that gave me a taste of, of choices to say, okay, there's only a certain limited amount of money. Let's make choices together and let's focus on the fundamentals. I, um, so as soon as I got my first job, I think I was 14 or 15, I just remember getting my, my paycheck or it wasn't a paycheck. It was like cash in an envelope and it was like $126. Can you imagine going from a dollar a week to $126? And I started to save furiously. So I never, ever had an attachment to things. And I took on a lot of the philosophy of my father where, yeah, the value in buying things or representing yourself with fashion or fancy cars was never ingrained in me. And I was indoctrinated into saving, into investing, especially real estate. So I actually ended up getting a part-time job after my first job working as a checkout chick in a supermarket (laughs) in a real estate agency. So Mm -hmm. I used to, one of my jobs at the real estate agency, and this was after school on the weekends, was to put the owner's statements in an envelope every month. And I remember there was this one owner and he had like 14 or 15 properties. And I was like, wow, how does this person own 14 or 15 properties? So I became really curious. The second thing that happened was that my boyfriend at the time, his personal trainer, and he was an athlete, and his personal trainer, I came to learn, owned a hundred properties. And like, he's a personal trainer. And I'm like, how does a personal trainer own a hundred properties? So the combination of working in the real estate agency, the exposure to my boyfriend's trainer, my parents, I was like, oh, real estate. So I'd saved up, I don't know, about $10,000. And, uh, and my boyfriend convinced me to go to a Tony Robbins seminar. So this was really the moment. This is the moment where everything just like the, the, the entire path opened up. And I actually believe that if you haven't done a Tony Robbins seminar, no matter what age, just go do it because it really, it really puts your whole mentality into shape like very quickly within three or four days. So I walked across hot coals and the outcome was that my... My, my, my mission was to become financially independent. Why? By the age of 30. Why? Because it meant freedom, doing what you want, with who you want, wherever you want. And I also wanted to start my journey from a financial base so I didn't have to make the sacrifices that my parents made most notably the time that they were able to spend with us. I'm like, when I have kids one day, I want to spend time with my kids and I don't want to be working crazy hours. So that was like the mentality. So I came back from the Tony Robbins seminar and somehow the conversation came up with my parents and they said, you know, one day 
I said to my mum and dad, I, I'm on a mission to become financially independent. And they're like, well, you know, it's traditional for the parents of their daughter to pay for the wedding, but we're going to give the option to take the money now and invest it. <laughs> and I'm like, I have no desire yes. to get married now. Sure, <laughs> I'll take it. I went to my real estate agency and I said, uh, hey, I've got a deposit of $20,000. Um, what do you suggest that I buy? And so I saw it advice from the people that did this day in day out and I bought my first property I don't know like 18 or 19 so that was sort of like the first and in my mind I thought that I was going to own five properties outright by the age of 30. In parallel I'd studied communications at university and my, my mother's just been so instrumental in my life and through her network she helped me get a job working for a senator at Parliament House whilst you know, I was sort of at the tail end of studying. And that led me to being connected with the Lowy family who started the Westfield Shopping Center multi-billion dollar empire. And it was the cross intersection of when marketing was transforming and I'd just finished studying and they're like, hey, maybe you can come in and help us out. And I took on that opportunity and I re- realized I was out of my depth. I really didn't know what I was doing, but it was such a lucrative opportunity. I think it was worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And this was in the nineties. And I'm like, I'm not letting this opportunity slip away. I was like 19. I'm like, I'm going to just go hire somebody that knows what they're doing. And I put an ad (laughs) and then I became an accidental founder. And that, that business was phenomenal because we built it up to be it's content marketing agency was all about the psychology of how people make purchasing decisions. And we were very focused in our services where we would build entire customer funnels and write scripts for telemarketing and direct response letters and brochures. We worked with about a hundred brands and that business was generating over a million dollars a year. And we invested it all into real estate. You know, the combination of the real estate portfolio, the business became like a cash cow and that became our life for eight years. For eight years was just a hundred percent focus on those two variables. So by the, by the time I turned 27, we'd bought 50 properties. <laughs> it's amazing. The resilience and the creativity. It seems like it was just sort of inbred in you to meet these sort of moments and challenges and to figure out creative ways forward. Um, I particularly like, like it became a founder because I needed to hire someone who knew what they were doing. <laughs> I love that. You know, and that's, that's actually a really important point because honestly, I never saw myself as being particularly smart or an academic. I'm, I was very self-aware of what I didn't know. But the one, the one variable or the mindset was, hey, if I don't know how to do it, find somebody that can. That's it. It was that simple. Perfect. I think it's a point that every entrepreneur needs to uh, put in their toolkit um, because a lot of entrepreneurs think they need to do it all themselves. And that's actually not, not true. Great example. So you went from real estate in Australia to being part of the founding team of Zing in Europe, like another big leap that must have been, you know, filled with uncertainty. Tell us how that happened and what you were feeling and what was the motivation or the sort of sequence that led you from path you were on in Australia to this just completely different direction? Never in a million years did I ever envision that I would end up in Germany, which is where my parents escaped to, to be part of a technology company. So, so if we 
wind back to that point of being 27, having built this thriving content marketing agency, having accumulated a real estate portfolio, and pretty much arriving, arriving at that point of financial independence. And anybody would look at my life and go, wow, that's a perfect life. I was healthy, had a great family, a great relationship. So I, I sat with that for a little while. And I also had made a number of friends that were much older than I was. They were in their 40s and 50s. And I had a look at their life and I'm like, wow, my trajectory is similar in that I can continue to be accumulating wealth, buying, building a real estate portfolio, building this business. Is that what I really want? And when I, and, and this is no, no judgment per se, like these people weren't happy. They were like chasing and chasing and chasing and it was just no end to the chase. And I'm like, that's, that isn't, that, that's not the life that I want. So I joined the entrepreneur organization and found myself in Switzerland with 400 entrepreneurs from all different walks of life, hearing their stories. They were all, all like-minded and similar. And I was sitting in a cafe in Rome with one of my really close friends and she asked the question. She said, how has this trip inspired you? What would you do differently in your life? And I just, I looked at her and it was a moment of truth. And I went, you know what? I want to move to Europe. I feel like Sydney, Australia is such a perfect country, a perfect city. Like I feel like my life is perfect and that's not where I want to be at 27. So I want to move to Europe. I want to actually go discover what my purpose is. Like what are my gifts? I I, I actually, I'm not, I don't really know what my gifts are. I'm not connected to them. I don't really even know what my passions are. I need to go on a journey to discover that. And the next company that I build will be born out of creating impact versus born out of creating profit. She looked at me, she says, why don't you do it? <laughs> it was like, game on. <laughs> and, uh, and that moment I looked into her eyes and the tears started streaming and I said, I'm going to do it. And I went back to Sydney and within a week had just totally transformed my life. So I went in search of my purpose. And again, for two years, I had no idea where I was going, where I would be, who I would meet. Like I completely surrendered to the outcome and just trusted that it would appear when it would appear. So you're talking about Zing. Um, I Maybe I want to interrupt you before you tell us about Zing because this theme that um, I mentioned earlier of like, really listening to your inner voice and following your intuition and your heart. I mean, this is a prime example. And I mean, you upended your life in Australia, right? I mean, you, you, you described this sort of, you had a relationship, you had your businesses and you, you were willing to step out of that because you felt like your heart was called. So, so even before you tell us about Zing, can you just share like how, how, do, how does one do that? I mean, I think a lot of people don't even, they may want to make choices like that, but it's so scary or there's other things that stop them from doing it. Why do you think you were able to, to actually make that kind of leap? So first of all, I did a stop take of my fears. So I'm like, what am I afraid of? Uh, I'm in a relationship with a man that I really love. However, 
he's embarking on the deepest spiritual path. He's spending hours a day meditating and he has no interest in building companies or traveling around the world. So our interests are not aligned. So that was one. You know, secondly, our businesses had reached a maturity and I actually reached a point where I'm like, I have enough. I really don't need any more. And then the third was, what about family? Often people think about family and friends. And I'm like, my parents uprooted their whole life and they left. So that was like within me. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, they did that. I can do that. There's a lot of interesting people out in the world. So I went one by one, I went through, what am I afraid of? And I came to peace with that very quickly, very quickly. The second step that I took was I had to go through a process of unshackling myself from the mental models that I had adopted from the time I went to that Tony Robbins seminar. And it was all around goal setting and accumulation and plans. And I actually gave all of that up. I'm like, no more spreadsheets, no more goals right now. I'm a huge fan of goals, but like, I need to completely surrender all of that. The third thing I did was ideology. So I walked across hot coals when I was 17 and developed my vision to become financially independent and they became interconnected. I needed a new metaphor. So the metaphor that I came up with was this notion, it's very romantic, that your life is like a storybook. So imagine that every year of your life represents a chapter of your storybook and over the course of your life, you flick through your book. How do you want that narrative to unfold? And I made a decision to simplify my, the, the, the framework for my life to just one word every year. So the first year, and I do this at New Year's Eve every year, but the first year became the year of peace. And I did, you don't overthink it or overfeel it. You're just like, this is what's calling to me because I was burnt out. So I was yearning peace. And then I subscribed to this notion of synchronicity and serendipity in a way like manifesting peace. And little behold, peace started to unfold. So what did I do? I went and did a 10-day Vipassana. Nice. (laughs) And that Vipassana cleared all of the noise. Like the onion was so, there were so many layers on the onion. I deep dove to the deepest, deepest, deepest part of me. And it was scary and hard as hell at times. I remember day one, day two, day three, day seven. That's when I reached a turning point. But that became my new anchoring. My new metaphor was just like nothing real is being threatened. Like you're anchoring to surrender, to peace. And that is the foundation that will lead you to discovering your purpose. So leave the country. There's nothing to fear. And then allow the synchronicity and the serendipity to unfold. That that became the trust that I had in. Beautiful. Wow. That's really, really cool. So, so take us then did the uh, zing happen in the peace year or is that sort of following that time? I'm, cur- I'm curious, of course, of the future year's themes, but um, um, yeah, tell us how, how zing sort of came onto the scene. Zing came as a result of discovering my purpose. 
So in the two years of travels, I met hundreds of people. I listened to hundreds of stories from rickshaw drivers to the Prince of Saudi Arabia, everybody in between. Wherever I traveled to, I would just proactively seek people out, connect with them, and just listen and engage. And what I became passionate about was people, storytelling, this whole notion of like when you hear stories and inspires something in you and that inspiration, the emotion then inspires you to take an action. I started to look at like, what are the dynamics that makes the world go around? And I'm like, you know, that is the area that I want to invest my time into. But what's really a problem that I can solve? What's a, what's, what's, what's a, where, where can I create impact? So coming from marketing and advertising, I asked myself the question, how much money is invested into advertising? What is advertising? Advertising is really all about getting somebody's attention and influencing them in some way to take an action in its simplest form. And so when I, when I really looked at the fact that there was over a trillion dollars invested in getting somebody's attention, when I looked at the ads and the content, it just lacked any meaning and purpose. It was just transactional. And I just went, wow, isn't our attention really scarce? And I thought, what if brands or anybody that was investing into advertising could actually create impactful, meaningful messages? That's, that just makes more sense. And that's when I stumbled upon my purpose. And that was to bring more consciousness into advertising. It was all about the attention economy being more conscious. Mm-hmm. That sounded very abstract <laughs> because, you know, this is before. It sounds so relevant work. now, but at the time that must have been a very novel idea. It was so novel. And, and you know what? What's useful is that I read a couple of books. One was uh, The Power of Unreasonable People, How Social Entrepreneurs Are Changing the World. And there were like 20 case studies in there. So that inspired me. And then another book I read was The Bottom Billion, and that was just putting into perspective the poverty gap that exists in the world. So those two books significantly influenced my thinking and the questions that I asked that led me to discovering my purpose. So I discovered my passions, I discovered my purpose, and I'm like, well, how does that manifest? Now what? (laughs) Like, again, I'm walking completely blind It's not like I'm following a playbook. I'm just allowing the flow to take me where it's supposed to take me. And now I'm in Kuala Lumpur at an entrepreneur organization event, sitting with Lars Henrik at the back of a bus, going from one event to the other. And and he's like, Maria, I've just started a social network. And I'm like, what's a social network? And he's like, it's going to transform the world. It will completely revolutionize the way that people come together and connect. And I want you to come and move to Germany and be part of our team. And I'm like, Lars, I don't speak German. I'm not a technologist. I've never had a job. I've only ever worked for myself. I'm actually not looking for a job. Like, I just don't understand why this invitation is even calling. And he's like, social networking is all about people and passion and connection. And you understand customer acquisition and retention. So you'll figure out member acquisition and retention. That's really the secret source to how we're going to scale this company. So I was intrigued. Mm -hmm. And that's why I moved to Germany. And I said to him, I'm like, listen, let me just come and hang out in Hamburg for two or three months. And let's just see where this takes us, right? Because both of us are are walking a little blind here. So that's how I came to be in Hamburg. (laughs) 
Well, and so fast forward, Zing today has over a billion dollar market cap and is one of the leading social networks. It also, from what I understand, was sort of a place from which Linkia was birthed or your ideas, Uh your, your notions about influencer marketing kind of came from that, those, those predecessor experiences. So why don't, mm-hmm. if we can, um, fast yeah. forward to today, like, uh, uh, and tell us a little bit about your current venture, Linkia. Um, what was behind the decision to start that? How did it come into form? And what's the secret sauce? So anchoring on this notion of purpose, vision, which is to bring more consciousness into advertising, what has a social network got to do with that? But for me, the reason actually I took the opportunity on is like, intuitively, mentally, I couldn't, I couldn't connect, but intuitively, I'm like, this is going to lead me to where I need to be next, but I don't know where I'm going to be next, but I can feel it in my gut that I need to take this opportunity on with Zing. And I was totally out of my depth. Talk about imposter syndrome. Like, you know, I'm in a foreign country. So what I ended up doing was I just learned. I spoke to every person in the company, tried to understand how all the pieces came together. I started to spend time with the community members, the community leaders, with the brands. And so for many months, I immersed myself into this ecosystem. And what started to transpire, and this was like in 2004, what started to transpire was just awe-inspiring. Because being a marketer, I came from a world where all of the data was locked up in databases. Yeah, it wasn't open. And suddenly social networks were a completely open system. You had, we had millions of members and they were all congregating around their passions. It could be golf, cloud computing, any topic you can imagine. And I'm like, this is so fascinating. Like you can enter a group and people have opted into that group and now they're chatting about different topics. This is unheard of. So that was one revelation. The second revelation was that the groups within these social networks was where the value existed in the social network. It made the social network grow and it gave that stickiness. And we actually analyzed some data and we found that people that belong to groups were nine times more likely to return versus somebody that didn't belong to a group. So then we started to interview the group leaders. What motivates you to create a group? How much time do you spend? How can we support you? And what they were looking for was brand affiliations. Why? Because it made them look good. Hey, if I can like partner with Volkswagen or IBM, then I look like a hero and I don't want to sell my audience out. But if they can give me access to content, white papers and experts and access to events, oh, I'm going to feel like a hero. Mm -hmm. So as we started to talk to brands, the brands wanted the same thing. They wanted to affiliate, not with the whole social network, but here are the groups of people that we're interested in. So as a marketer, I started to see this correlation and I'm like, this is the business that I was in eight years ago. We used to match brands with groups of people, but the way that we used to connect them was in a silo locked up channel. This is a completely open channel. So how does that even work? So at the time, Dove came out with their self-esteem campaign, which to me was a watershed moment. And this was bringing consciousness into advertising because Dove was creating content around self-esteem, which was beautiful. And we took the video and we approached a number of women group leaders and said, can you spark a conversation around beauty? However you choose to do that is entirely up to you. Watch the video, share it with the audience. Let's just see how they engage. So the turning point was when that 
video was shared, 25% of the members had watched the video within 24 hours and there were hundreds of comments. And these conversations went on for weeks and months, even a year later. So by the third month, to me, it was a phenomena. And I'm like, this is the future of advertising. This is how we bring more consciousness into advertising. Every single brand marketer will be deploying this way of connecting with their audience. Undoubtedly, I have no idea when, but but I'm going to go build a company around that. And that's how Linky was founded. Influencer marketing was pioneered in 2004 or so. Wow. Well, I remember the Dove campaign. It was definitely a game changer. It's interesting to have for you to connect all of these different dots and sort of that it's that synchronicity and, and sort of the trust in the universe that it's going to be leading you to the precise things that you need to see and experience in order to put the sort of framework of your path together. It's really, really fascinating. So what would you say that relates to Linkia has been the, the biggest hardships or challenges? I mean, what have been the times that uh, as a founder, you have had to dig deep and to glean your own wisdom um, that you could share with other founders, perhaps from your journey? There's been, been many twists and turns along the way, starting from when I made the decision to come to the United States because I had incubated this whole ecosystem concept and it took five years to really figure it out or parts of it out. And uh, at the time that I made a decision to come to the United States was when I was pregnant with my first child and I had to make a decision, like, do I go back to Australia and just live the white picket fence life or do I get on the plane and go to Silicon Valley and give it my best shot? So coming on a plane with a six-week-old baby was certainly like, again, uncharted territory. Let's just figure this out. And it became an absolute blessing because I was so focused. Becoming a mother or a father, what it does is it grounds you and it has you really look at where you're spending your time and the decisions that you're making. So that was the first challenge and how I overcame it. The second was that I came to America really a nobody. I didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't work for a well-established American company. Like I couldn't even get a credit card. <laughs> and I was financially independent. So coming to the United States essentially without an identity taught me the greatest value was my authenticity. Who am I? The stories, like these authentic stories that I would tell. It was the passion. It was the vision. Like that, that was it. And so that enabled us to actually, one, secure a co-founder, bring on board our first investors, bring on board our first customers. And all of those assets, are still with us today. I have the most phenomenal co-founder. We have the most phenomenal venture capital firm and, uh, and customer base. So that was really like the second challenge. I mean, the passion and the power that comes from being revealed and being so kind of in your own truth is really, is really incredible. It's something I, I really have come to deeply value and cherish in you. It's fantastic. <laughs> You know, one of my questions was for our podcast, one of the themes is around fear and failure and around how to entrepreneurs overcome that. But in a certain way, I feel like you've answered the question by virtue of these, you know, your, your story and that 
there's so many places where you've been like at the edge of the precipice and you're like, okay, <laughs> stepping off, you know, um, it's really almost a pattern in your life. So I don't know if there's anything that you would kind of share a nugget of wisdom for founders who find themselves in this place of fear or, or mm-hmm. worried about failure, like takeaways or some sage advice for so many of us who grapple with fear on our path, like I'm sure you did in those, those key moments. Yeah, the relationship between fear and failure. Uh, failure is a mindset. There's no such thing as failure. And don't ever let anybody convince you otherwise. Because if you put yourself out there, that in itself is already a success. And how I learned, how I became to have the relationship with failure goes hand in hand with surrendering to the outcome, full stop. You just don't know where the chips are going to fall. There's too many variables in the world. You have to trust the process. So that then shifts all of your focus into how you show up today and the mindsets that you develop and just exerting that energy into the momentum moving forward. And fear, it's interesting. They say that every decision you make is either out of fear or love. And I, I, I really struggled with that because I actually believe that fear plays a very important role to shed a light on what is most important, like what you value the most. And you can have a relationship with that. You can get in the ring with your fear. You can learn. That's where you learn and that's where you grow. The mental relationship or model that you have of fear can play such an instrumental role in your life to really make you a better person. Mm. Well, your mindset clearly comes across as one of positivity and opportunity and to confront, or like you said, be in the ring, be in the dance sort of be in the arena with, with all that is, like being able to meet the moment and have it be a teacher, an ally, an opportunity. So what do you think is behind your ability to, to have that kind of mindset? I mean, if, are there any tools or practices or kind of approaches that have been most valuable for you that others could potentially benefit from in terms of cultivating a mindset that has that resilience? Yeah. First and foremost, just the people you surround yourself with, really take a hard look at who's your life partner, your family, who's serving you, who's not serving you or serving each other. Uh, What about your colleagues and network of friends being very intentional and having very clear boundaries around who you have in your life is the number one most powerful foundation for you to then build and develop and stretch your mindset because that the human connection is the sounding board. You know, a second part of it is vulnerability. And I, it's much easier being a female, no matter what emotion I'm feeling, if I'm feeling scared or frustrated or joyful and elated, I have no qualm in sharing that with those that are around me. And in a way, it's a cry for help or I'm asking for help. Help me work through this. So vulnerability is key. And then third and foremost, again, it's surrendering to the outcome. The outcome is an illusion. It's hope. It's just, just trust that it's going to work out. It may not work out the way that you had imagined it, but this notion of surrendering has become such a fundamental tool that I use on a daily basis 
and it, and it creates a tremendous amount of peace and space to then create. So that's on the mindset. In terms of actual tools with books or podcasts, huge fan of Insight Timer. Every single morning when we wake up, we, uh, depending on how much time we have, this morning we only had 15 minutes, we'll, we'll take a guided meditation. And my favourite all-time teacher that just represents all the goodness that's in this universe is Sarah Blondin. She is poetic. She holds space. She helps guide and remind you of just celebrating who you are as a human. <laughs> Listening to her every day, you just, you just, you know, spring out of bed and, uh, and that's, you don't even need a cup of coffee. Just listen to Sarah Blondin. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, we probably are ending our time, although I, I, I feel like we can chat for hours. So maybe a couple of just like little speed round questions. So one, I didn't get to circle back on, I'm very curious, what were the themes of your other, your other years? So after peace, maybe give us a couple of other themes. A year of adventure is where I traveled around the world and was not in one place for more than four days. Uh, The year of celebration, uh, I had a crazy Indian wedding story for another day. (laughs) Uh, The year of new beginnings when my daughter was born. Uh, And, you know, this year is the year of uh, integration. So we're just integrating a lot of the best practices and tools and just what surfaced. Love it. Love it. And maybe someone you deeply admire or who has impacted your, your life. The first person that comes to mind is my, my spiritual life partner, Gary Moon, <laughs> and uh, has had the most profound effect on just seeing me for who I am and, and the time that we spend together is just such an instrumental part of our, our learning and growth path. So yeah, my very special place in my heart. <laughs> and I've had the, the uh, pleasure of meeting Gary as well. He's a lovely, lovely man. Uh, and one maybe quirky thing or fun fact about you that we haven't, you know, unearthed today, anything? Uh, yeah, quick funny story. So when I was deep in my real estate ventures and I think I was like 25, 26, some of my friends were fascinated by the the whole methodology and the approach and, you know, just the momentum that, 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 that I'd gained with that. So they said, oh, you know, can we, can we go on a trip with you, a scoping trip with you, and can you show us how to buy real estate? And I looked at them and I'm like, sure, I'll, happily I'll get on a plane with you. And there was like six of them. I'm like, but two conditions. One, you have to bring your checkbook and have enough for a deposit. Um, and two, you, you have to be willing to buy a property. Like this is, we're not going just for fun. Like you, you've got to be serious because we will find real estate. So a whole group of friends, six of us got on a plane. We flew up to Queensland. Every single one of them had bought a house or a block of units. And every single one of them had doubled and tripled their money. So that was a super fun experience. <laughs> Excellent. I want to be your friend. <laughs> That's lovely. So Maria, well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for being also for being the powerhouse co-host of Dear First Time Founders. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity for us to interview so many more wonderful entrepreneurs. I really appreciate your wisdom and your adventures um, as a multi-time founder, and also just the authenticity and the heart of your storytelling. 
and how revealed and, and generous you've been with us here today. So I'm wishing you and, of course, your team at Linkia continued success in bringing more consciousness into, into advertising and also just the depth of your storytelling. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. We'll come back with more inspirational stories Friday night, bi-weekly, wherever you find your podcast. And if you feel inspired and want to connect more with our founders, please follow us, Second Time Founders, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you, and we will see you all in the next episode.